in the urban environment of supermarkets and fast food restaurants, it's very difficult to find something to eat that doesn't have a ton of empty calories, that doesn't cause systemic inflammation, brain fog, or even lead to disease. In the midst of this nutritional nightmare, there are some people who are taking their research and adventures to their utmost limit by traveling around the world and searching for the key ingredients that are missing from our menu. Welcome to the Body, Mind and Pokemon podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and in today's episode, we have one of those experts as a guest for us. His name is Jaakko Halmetoja. Jaakko is a nutrition and superfood expert from Finland who has written some books, does a lot of public speaking, and is involved with some entrepreneurship as well. He says that his passion is making health and wellness cool again. Our conversation is gonna be about some of the superfoods that are growing right at your backyard. But we also talk about some of the other compounds that can be found worldwide and that you can use in your food right now. If you want to support this podcast, then make sure you leave us a review on iTunes and other social media platforms. But the show must go on and let's now delve into the world of superfoods. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Jaakko, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Sim. Thanks for the introduction. Nice. And uh, why don't we start off with uh, you know, some of your personal backstory. What got you into this kind of uh, field of research and uh, exploration in particular? Yeah, I think my background is mainly in athletic world. Both of my parents are physical exercise teacher or, or where. And by that, I've been, you know, just doing all kinds of sports my whole life. And um, especially the first 20 years of my life, I was just training a lot. I went to, you know, special forces to become a paratrooper and, you know, did martial arts pretty hardcore uh, for a decade. And by that, of course, you get more and more interested about recovery and nutrition and all of these things. But then around a decade ago, I just changed my diet quite a bit I went to become a raw vegan for several years and mm. stuff like that so I understood or get more uh, interested about the side of like how 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 sensitive you can become and how much you can actually also understand about your inner processes and, and stuff like that so it was kind of a shift from more kind of a performance oriented approach to health and and your body and mind to just more straightforward to what type of emotions do you carry around all the time and how can you change how do you look at the world and uh, it's been an interesting journey can you tell me a little bit about uh, what made you transition from a vegan diet to a different one well, I've, I've been just playing around for all kinds of things. Before that, I was, you know, following a paleo diet for several years. And so I'm not um, seeing these things as kind of that my identity is now locked into this one thing. But I've I just been, you know, trying a lot of things. And, and you learn through the process a lot about different things. And, and then, you know, I learned a lot from, as I said, from the sensitivity side of things and about plants and the connection and all that. And 
after after it it's been more into herbs and more into actually growing the food and you know adding back a lot of the stuff from from also um, animal kingdom and other kingdoms so I'm just you know following anything that this is under my interest so um, I've, I've been fixing it a lot during the years how has living in Finland influenced your passion about this this uh, nutrition topic well I think that um, I'm, I'm quite naturalist in a, in a sense that I was grown up in a, a northern part part of Finland or northern from Helsinki and so so I've spent a lot of time in nature and just you know in Finland we have of course four seasons and, and you get exposed to different elements and different things so whether it was swimming in the ice cold waters or you know I've been drinking spring water from nature almost 10 years now and just foraging mushrooms and wild herbs and stuff like that so I think that we have more connection to the nature still left so because of that it's even more popular in here I think that we use wild herbs and all of these things are kind of cool these days mm. so it's it's a good momentum mm. with all of the all of the other health stuff that we've been you know talking for a long time yeah exactly like uh, this part of the world like Estonia Scandinavia even Russia and Siberia and Finland and those there, I, I think like it's very uh, fortunate for us to have access to you know these. We, first of all, we don't have natural disasters that that yeah. many. We only have like a few months of darkness and uh, extreme cold. But uh, other than that, it's quite uh, it's quite of a good place to live in. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, exactly. You're also the author of uh, several books. One of which is the Biohackers Handbook. What is biohacking for you, and why would you write a book about it? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey around that topic. Um, as I said, I'm more kind of um, oriented into the kind of nature-based approach to many things and, and love that connection. But for around five years now, I've been kind of having one leg in the more technocratic approaches and technology world because... I do a lot of events and seminars and because of that I also, you know, observed how the whole field is changing and how innovation, technology, more slow, all of these things are disrupting the whole whole industry. And uh, then we met with Demo and Olli uh, around five years ago and we decided to kind of take these big signals and, and amplify them into this, this structure that finally ended up being this biohacker's handbook. But even though the semantics around the, the word biohacking are all over the place from, you know, nanotech and, you know, actually modifying your DNA and all of these things, I think we have much more grounded and um, pragmatic approach. What mm. just are the tools around us, whether it was technology, whether it was nature, food, meditations, you know, ancient old things or brand new things. So just gathering all of these tools and I think that the, the new angle is also that we can quantify and measure these things more easily and cheaply than ever before. So this creates this feedback loop kind of structure around more personalized health and medicine. And, and that's kind of the platform that we are talking about more. So I still think it's, it's much more grounded and, and much more kind of a conventional in that sense. So it's 
some people think that it's all about either hacking your biology with uh, you know some nutrition or exercise or on the flip side you would want to hack it all and you know allocate every process to the technolo technology but yeah i would i would suggest that you have to build like this some sort of a uh, symbiotic relationship with your technology and to uh, fix some of the fix some of the loopholes of human nature with it mm. And, yeah, and of course, you know, technology also can mean, you know, breathing exercises, meditation techniques. So yeah. it's so broad term that all of these things that we, you know, have created, all of these tools can be seen as technology. So yeah, exactly. that's also good to remember. Language itself is a technology for, for culture, in a sense. Yeah, true that. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the purpose of, these, of your project with the Biohackers Handbook with the Biohackers Summit and uh, all things related to that? Yeah, I think it's in a sense always uh, selfish also to kind of put you into into a position that you gather just cool people who are interested in the same ideas and same topics to share information. So I think that both of these are kind of hubs for ideas to have sex and just in ch exchange new ideas, learn more about what other people are doing in this day and age. So it's kind of an open-ended project in that sense. So we don't really know what will happen, but now we've kind of done the framework um, also for other people. And of course, one of the core ideas is just to put the data together and contribute to all the other other people. And um, yeah, but it's it's been very interesting to see what type of people get attracted by the idea because it's kind of a nerd term, very technocratic approach like biohacking. It's, <laughs> it's not that kind of um, soft in a way. So um, yeah, but it's still taking its form and we, we are still figuring out what will happen. Mm, nice, yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, your future project as well. But uh, let's, let's get more into detail with uh, your work and expertise. So. Your first book was actually written in 2012, and it was about the chaga mushroom. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What is the chaga mushroom, and why did you write a book about it? Yeah, that's actually fun because during the last month, actually, there's been so interesting stuff happening around around chaga. I've been just getting interesting emails from all over the world. So there is just this kind of a mushroom hype going on. Every now and then, and um, yeah, I first got introduced to the idea of medicinal mushrooms, I think in 2007 or 2008, and I've never heard about the subject. I was just, you know, eating chanterelles and portobellos and stuff mm -hmm. like that, but when I started to research these things more, I was just blown away, like, well, there is a lot of science actually behind these things, so they are these are very well studied, and We've, of course, extracted a lot of, you know, even drugs out, out from mushrooms over the years. So um, then I started to look around like, well, we have, you know, chaga mushrooms growing in Finland. We have, you know, turkey tails. We have reishi and all of these things that were, you know, sold on online for very high prices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I put together an article, especially around chaga and short video years back and then we kind of had this um, small inside joke about Chaga Mafia and it was just kind of a 
popularizing the idea that you can actually forage these things that are very easy to spot and they are widely available across the Finland. But nobody seemed to kind of notice them. It was just one of those folk, folk medicine things that nobody bothered to just use. So it became this huge phenomenon in Finland and everybody started to, you know, make tea and it, it became this kind of a funny um, hip thing. And because I wrote the article, people started to give me feedback about what what would, what had happened to them. And I just, you know, was blown away all the different stories, whether it was, you know, skin issues or autoimmune diseases, even cancer cases and stuff like that. And by that, I just, you know, started to dig more into the data. Like, what what is this stuff? Because I don't get this kind of feedback all uh, around all the other areas that I'm, you know, teaching to people. Ever since it's been, it's been even more interesting to hear the feedback. But it was just one of those things that we've used Chaga in Estonia and Russia in Finland for literally, you know, hundreds of years. But uh, it's one of those lost things that we didn't see value that much anymore. And now when the science is there, and of course all the possible ways to process and make extracts and make it much more easy to use, it's it's getting hyped up. Mm, yeah, exactly. Like uh, it's it's one of those things that it has flown under the radar in uh, health and uh, medicine, and and uh, when I also heard first about the health benefits of chaga, then I was also like very surprised, you know, because uh, chaga has one of the highest uh, ORAC scores of any food in the world. ORAC is it stands for oxygen radical absorption capacity, which and the higher the ORAC score, the better the food's ability to protect the body from disease and uh, free, free radicals, which, which practically makes chaga one of the best antioxidants in the world. Do you know what's, what's the difference between uh, chaga and other similar antioxidant foods? Yeah, I think, of course, all of the spices and um, things high in this novel oils, essential oils, are on top of the list, like rosemary and stuff like that always always blow that chart off but but yeah I often think about like what is the reason why a certain organism in nature um, produces these types of, of chemicals to itself and in, in the case of chaga is kind of a protecting the tree so uh, whenever these spores of the mushrooms inoculate the, the host tree which is usually in the case of chaga a birch tree then it starts to uh, eventually grow this conch on a tree and uh, it's this pitch black like the melano complex is filled with different different um, phytochemicals or mycochemicals so to speak and it's just kind of obvious for me often that if you observe and get more connected that what are these organisms doing in nature that why they produce so um, so much of these types of compounds but yeah chaga is one of the highest of, of any of those and um, those compounds are speci um, specifically very good for your gut mm. they're lowering inflammation in, in your GI tract and by that also affect your skin that's another area whether it was your melanoma or even things like vitiligo or different skin orders. That's one of the areas where I've gotten most feedback. Hmm. Yeah, the chaga mushroom definitely you know, points out 
uh, it grows on the tree and I, I always thought that is it something sort of like a cancer of, of the tree or or is it something like a bruise, bruising effect that heals the, the birch? Yeah, I think that's still kind of an open question. And if you read the articles online, many people kind of um, compare it to the, you know, cancer of the tree. And, and that's actually even in many languages. I think in Norwegian, it's it translates kind of, um, you know, cancer mushroom and stuff like that straight away. But um, the more I've actually talked about with this subject or with, let's say, Paul Stamets or some of these professional mycologists, they often believe that uh, it's actually helping the tree because there is studies and, and observations also from that side. So I'm not sure if there is kind of a um, clear consensus around the idea that what is actually doing. But um, my feeling is that even though it's it's helping, of course, the dying tree to, you know, get get kind of uh, put into pieces and, and fed to the soil at the end of its life cycle, it's also helping the tree at least in some cases. So it's just one of those things that is biologically very, very interesting. It differences from other mushrooms a lot. You know, I have some chaga growing in my backyard and I've also harvested a bit of it. And uh, how, how can some of the listeners make sure that they're getting the good stuff, that they're getting the right stuff without, you know, <laughs> gathering some random uh, mushrooms in the forest? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And first of all, I want to emphasize that pretty much all of the polypores or mushrooms or fungi that are growing on trees are safe. So that's not kind of 100% bulletproof, but... But the point being that it, there is a huge difference in uh, in the chemistry of the mushrooms that grow from the ground and mushrooms or polypores that grow on trees. So let's say that in Finland, for example, um, we have around 230 different polypores and there are probably just a few that are kind of half toxic if consumed. So in general, even if you'd pick something that wasn't the, the species that you were, were after. They are not that toxic. But uh, I think that just Google Images is a wonderful tool these days, and Chaga is especially easy to recognize. There are only kind of other formations in, in trees that look kind of the same, but they are not even mushrooms. They are just kind of mutations of the cells of the tree itself. But um, Chaga is pitch black. It's like completely like like you can see see the color of my shirt, so Darkness. it's just completely dark. So that's one of the key key things to look for. But uh, if you have Google Images and you actually spend a little time when you find something in the forest to kind of match it up, it's it's very easy to easy to recognize. And and there are no kind of species that are very similar to Chaga that you can get confused of. So it's a it's a easy to find. Mm. So chaga, it doesn't have like any negative effects or potential side effects, but uh, can you take too much chaga at once? Does it have like some sort of an adaptogenic effect and you become resistant to its medicinal effects? Yeah, I think um, one of the key things is to understand that um, these polypores or mushrooms are made of very, very, very hard cell walls uh, called chitin. 
So many insects also produce the same uh, cell structure and, and we don't really absorb it. So if you just crush down chaga and start eating it, that can actually be um, even harmful. There are some case studies where somebody have eaten chaga in that way and, and produced kidney stones and stuff like that because it's kind of high in oxalates, oxalic acid and stuff like that. So it's just important to process it com uh, correctly. So you often either boil chaga and make kind of a tea or decoction out of it, or you make tinctures, so extracting it by alcohol or, or so on, or use any of these um, already made extracts or something like that. So raw chaga is, is not the way to go. <laughs> but um, other than that, it's, it's really safe. And I don't say that lightly because almost all of the herbs that are even often considered kind of adaptogenic and, you know, nice and this and that still have uh, possible adverse effects and, and so on. And of course, that's also a case with chaga if you have, you know, certain medications and stuff like that. But if I compared it to almost anything, even any foods, it's it's very, very safe. And that's because there are there are no um, chemicals that kind of directly affect any of the uh, metabolic pathways that are kind of harsh for our system. Mm -hmm. So the the main mechanisms how chaga works is that it kind of feeds, for example, um, the gut bacteria. So it's a good prebiotic for mm -hmm. our gut bacteria, and this is um, this is with all of these medicinal mushrooms. So the glucan structures, these highly chained polysaccharides in these mushrooms are really healing your gut. And by that, they are in, indirectly affect and modulate your immune system. And, and these are kind of dual directional. So that's why they often also work for autoimmune diseases where your immune system is just kind of running on too high speed and just ramped up. So it calms them down. So... Mm. That's one property of, of not just chaga, but many of the other medicinal mushrooms also. But yeah, I've been consuming it a lot for for years, and, and that's kind of the um, profile of any real tonic herb that you could do it, even in larger amounts without any adverse effects. So that's, that's my kind of um, take on it after all the years and talking all the you know ayurvedic practitioners and you know scientists from different fields the chinese medicine approach all of these kind of see it as very tonifying and very soft for the body so i would consider it extremely safe hmm. yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned that like it's a good prebiotic and uh so what would be like a very good time to consume it would it be like before food or in the morning or when, when? Yeah, that's that's kind of the traditional approach. So of course, when I you know geeked into the very old texts from from Russia and so on, they often recommended it to to be drink uh, before before food, like thirty minutes before dinner or so on. So I think that's also a good indicator for that. So. But of course, um, for example, this time of the, of the year, one of the main ways I use chaga is I have this big kettle mm -hmm. where I boil it and I have this decoction. And then I boil it for, for it to be a, a base liquid for my 
cacao or chocolate elixirs and, and stuff like that. And, and by that type of uh, behavior, you get easily one liter or even two liters of, of chaga tea or chaga infusion a, a day. So there are many ways that you can you can use it, but uh, that's an easy one. Just take a one one cup of chaga before dinner or so. It won't have like a stimulating effect, like caffeine or something. No, there are no kind of stimulating chemicals in chaga, but I think for many people it kind of gives this, um, I would say, stamina. In Chinese medicine, they talk about qing energy, or uh, in Western terms, it kind of affects your HPA axis, your adrenals, and, and you kind of get this more energized state, but it's not kind of um, stimulated more caffeinated state but just that you want to do more stuff <laughs> so in that sense i i of course recommend that if, if you get that try to drink it more during the the first hours of the day and so on but uh, it doesn't have any kind of stimulating chemicals in in that form this actually brings me to you know another point which is that the there are the, the superfoods that are growing in our natural environment you have traveled many regions of the world but before we get into those kinds of foods you've discovered there, I want to talk about some other similar nutrients that that can be found in especially the northern hemisphere like Finland and uh, Estonia. Yeah, well, for example, at this time of the year, one of my favorite herbs is rhodiola or rose root, rhodiola rosea. So that's kind of the um, northern ginseng. So, so this is also an actual adaptogenic herb that kind of uh, helps us not just to um, get better at, at, you know, under stressful situations or even enhances our cognitive capacity. There are quite a few clinical trials um, around this herb. And I use a lot of uh, rhodiola tinctures so that this is easy thing also to do it's it's a little bit more a northern climate um, plant and it, it's widely used especially in russia but also in chinese medicine so rhodiola is definitely one of those plants that that's um, on top of my list when it comes to our local climate um, you kind of make tinctures out of the out of the nettle roots and um, later the summer, you can you can start harvesting the seeds, and I think these are one of the most nutrient dense kind of um, uh, formations in nature in our ecosystems, and almost nobody gathers them. Mm -hmm. And you can mix them in honey or make pestos or stuff like that. So one of the most underused uh, things that are very valuable around us, but nettles would definitely be on on top of my kind of top three list. Mm, yeah, but I think uh, the reason why people might have some sort of repulsion against nettle is that it, it may leave some rashes on your skin and, you know, in particular for my own childhood, uh, whenever it was the summer, you walk around the forest and you accidentally get in contact with the nettle yeah. on your skin and it's going to burn like hell. So you, de <laughs> you definitely wouldn't imagine that it would be tasty to or even healthy to eat those things. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also one of those things that's been one of the key, almost kind of spices that we've added up on all the soups or, you know, with eggs, all kinds of foods in our, our culture. 
but then at least in Finland, after the world wars and all that, they were seeing kind of the uh, food that we ate during the world wars. So we um, probably had kind of emotional trauma associated mm. with those types of, of food. So now we kind of need to brand them back to, to where, where they need to be in our our um, own culture and and those are I think the the things that we should be really proud of because um, many people let's say in the states or any other ecosystems they are eager for nettles it's an excellent food slash herb that grows everywhere in here so it's often funny to me like how close the abundance often is for us and how blind we are to see these things but Nettles are definitely um, easy to pick, and even uh, early in the spring, they haven't formed the formed the spikes that are actually formed of of silica. So mm. silica is very important mineral, especially for for your connective tissues, for nails, for hair, and stuff like that. So it's a really good source of these types of minerals, also, and that's a good sign for for that. Mm, yeah, that's that's you know very very interesting point to, that you mentioned, and also like the you talked about how we need to readapt these things back into the culture, and what I want to emphasize at this point as well is that like how important culture is for the average person's uh, cuisine, daily cuisine. You know, it it has a huge impact on what they think is healthy at first, and uh, what do they actually eat. Uh, quite recently, actually. I found on Twitter that the it was National Fast Food Day in the United States. So <laughs> it comes to show, you know, yes. what, what nutritional value some uh, countries tend to have. And uh, it's also very important to promote uh, more holistic ways of eating, not, not only for your organism, as, not only for your health, but also for, you know, the ecosystem and the entire culture. That's true. And I was actually um, yesterday speaking at the conference and I watched the video later and I was just kind of like, wow, that, that was an interesting point. And I mentioned that culture is the same word for, you know, culture, but also something that is fermenting. So if you think about, for example, that you go and pick some nettles from the wild, um, the leaves are filled with beneficial probiotics so the bacteria the culture is there and if you start to implement and actually connect with those types of organisms and life forms you are basically made of your ecosystem much more so that link is also very concrete in that sense the more adaptable we of course become to the different diseases because probiotics or mushrooms and these things are producing the chemistry against the viruses, against the bacteria, against other fungi and so on. And they've been doing that literally in, you know, billions of years. So there is quite a lot that we can also learn from these organisms and we often overlook them. The greatest example is, you know, antibiotics. You're, you're, you become, your gut bacteria become resistant to them and, you know, you wipe out the microbiome in your own gut as well in the process of taking them. So. You can't outsmart the the bacteria who who are you have who have you know developed this uh, much greater intelligence than we we as humans individually have. But uh, another traditional superfood from the north is uh, bone broth soup. 
which you talked about at the Biohacker Summit as well. You know, can you explain what is uh, bone broth and what are its health benefits? Yeah, I think it's also one of those things that when our food culture changed from actually being more connected that, uh, well, there's the animal that we killed and we appreciate it a lot, so we'll use all of the parts of the animal. It was old wisdom that, of course, the bones and all of these parts were also boiled, boiled down to get the nutrients that we understood that, of course, if the animal concentrates certain nutrients to its bones and its connected tissues, those are probably pretty helpful for us also. Mm. So that's the punchline with bone broth, that you basically just boil them in water, add some, let's say, apple cider vinegar to enhance the the absorption of, of or or you just get out more of the minerals from the bones by that. So if you drink that, you, you get a lot of goodies, a lot of interesting amino acids, certain minerals, you know, it's just one of these things that I think um, also teaches us um, the interconnectivity be between different parts, in this case, of the animals, that nutrients are concentrated, the organ meats. Okay, you have these nutrients in the meat and you have these nutrients in the bones. So um, it's quite nutrient-dense stuff. And I think that the, the cool part with bone broth is that it's it's pretty tasty. So that's, of course, uh, old wisdom with all the culinary chefs that they know that you need to have that broth going with all the spices and all that. But I think specifically it's good in this um, day and age because people have a lot of issues with, uh, with their um, gut permeability. So the gut lining is in not that good, uh, good condition and and certain nutrients, certain protein structures in uh, bone broth is very helpful for restoring the, the, the condition of gut lining. So mm. that's one of those things that it's, it's very cheap and easy to do. And you can start your day by just drinking, let's say, a few, few deciliters of, of bone broth or start using that more as a base for your soups during the winter, winter season and just cool and easy thing. I drink some uh, bone broth almost every day and uh, you know it tastes amazing. You add some spices to it and uh, the tendons and the ligaments are actually like one of my favorite parts. They have this you know gelatinous uh, gelatinous uh, taste to it and like gummy bears or or, yeah. even, or even like if you cook some steak or something with you have the bone marrow inside of it you know that's the most nutrient dense and that's the most delicious part. Show them some bone marrow. The dark stuff in the center there, scoop it out of there with a fork and just slurp it down. Just slurp it down. I love it, man. And of course, if you observe what the animals do, like the, the old joke is that when the wolf pack kills an animal, the alpha is the one who gets to eat the liver and the heart. And they often are very eager for these parts, whether it was bone marrow or any of other, other very nutrient-dense parts. So... It's just kind of common sense that um, that we should also implement more of these types of food because otherwise they, they're often just thrown away and I don't really think that that's a good idea either. When you're in the survival scenario then you would want to go for the liver right away because you would get more uh, nutrients from that rather than just trying to eat some uh, raw flesh or something like that. Mm. But yeah. uh, is, there, is there some sort of a difference between uh, either grass-fed grass-fed cows from their bones or 
or some sort of farm-raised animals? Does it affect the nutrients of the liver or the bones in particular? Yeah, in both ways. I think the core core ethos there is that um, we are not what we eat, but what we eat ate. Mm. So they get um, they get everything from the environment, whether it was nutrients, whether it was toxins, whether it was a mixture of both of those and so on. So, of course, it's even more important that when we, you know, go upper to the food chain, it's even much more important to understand that the, how the whole food chain worked. And especially with these type of mammals who often store many of the fat-soluble toxins and stuff like that into these inner parts of also their uh, their cells. So it might be very nutritious, but there are also issues with heavy metals and different toxins and so on. So um, CrashFit is, is a good direction, but I don't think it's kind of any end point that we kind of want to emphasize too much, but just be more and more cautious whether it was around... Um, beef or around eating wild game or with fish or any of these things so mm. go always with the best possible quality because it matters much more with these types of things that let's say with tomatoes or something yeah. like that what about uh, grass with butter yeah of course there is a, a little bit more of certain nutrients and all that but i think it's also quite overhyped in in certain sense so if you get the like really good quality butter from animals who were actually you know grazing on herbs and you know wild plants and all that there might be quite a lot of difference in certain fat soluble vitamins and fatty acids and stuff like that but i don't think that that's kind of a super 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 important in that sense that if you just get a good quality butter from kind of a not that bad sources that that there's um but, you know, you get my point that always go to the best quality, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, why don't we, you know, transition over to some other superfoods before we lose our audience. What kind of other superfoods have you found during your travels across the world? You're, you're, I've also heard that you're a big fan of raw cacao and chocolate. Can you talk about a bit about that? Yeah, that's been, uh, that's been also one of those foods that I've been really into for a long time. And... I think I just fell in love with it because it's um, it's a stimulant, but it's not a stimulant in the same way as as coffee or any of these other very high caffeine foods are. But it's mainly um, alkaloid is is theobromine, which is more heart and circulatory system stimulant. So I think it's it's great way to get more kind of conscious about about your heart, literally. Kind of, it opens up the the heart in not just metaphorical sense, but I think it's because I'm kind of an introvert in a way. Even though I'm with a lot of people and give presentations and all that, it's a good social tool also because mm-hmm. if you get a good amount of caca and these types of compounds into your body, I, I definitely see that it helps by uh, you know getting into more of the of the flow of speaking and of course the cognitive enhancement and you know enhancement for people with athletic well so it's a great way to get that pump going and blood flow and nitric oxide all of these benefits but but yeah i've been into many 
many places in the tropics, you know, farming and, you know, gathering wild cacao fruits and eating beans from the inside. And it's just one of those things that I love. And as I said, let's say with um, chaga concoction as a base with raw cacao powder and, you know, local honey and spices, it starts to be a really nice way to, for example, start your day this winter winter season. So that's a classic one. But, uh, of course, all the cream powders and, you know, chlorella and spirulina and stuff like that is it's one of kind of the daily musts that I do, especially when traveling, just to keep my energy levels high, get the oxygen going in my body. And, and I always have some powerful greens with me. I always travel with some of these medicinal mushroom extract powers, whether it was chaga, rishi, or cordyceps, lion's mane, any of these just to keep my immune system in a good spot and then there are more or less always some type of berries around me berry powders or local you know berries of course my freezer is filled with bilberries and stuff like mm. that aronia berries that i grow and and so on but um, other than that i just always try to connect with the local fermented food as i said to to get the bacteria in and, and those are probably kind of the the core things that I always wanna wanna get into into the diet when I'm traveling. You mentioned you, we've talked about the immune system quite a lot. How can these foods that we discussed so far, you know, how can they affect the immune system, and uh, what could people do to not get sick during the winter? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I think uh, vitamin D is one of the master switches to be more aware and implement into your diet into into these these um these months of the year so that's one thing that i'd recommend especially for people who are not getting enough sunlight during the winter i you know travel quite a bit even even during this winter so i, I don't supplement that much but that's just one of those that i also want people to to quantify and measure from from their their blood mm-hmm. but um other than that i'm I'm just distilling it to the bacteria and the mushrooms because those are kind of the um, biggest bang for the power. Biggest yeah, bang the, bang. those are the powerhouses, and and of course one of my my things has been that for ten years now I haven't been sick in any day or even kind of feeling half sick because I think that I've educated my immune system with better better tools and better weapons and. As I said, these are um, very old life forms that know how to produce um, communication tools with with viruses or with bacteria, with other fungi. And that's why um, we can learn so much from them. And of course, people understand that, let's say, antibiotics are, you know, originally made from from mushrooms. They are Mm. often mushroom extracts, whether it was penicillin or tetracyclines or Mm. any of these things. So... We can learn a lot from these kingdoms of life and um, it can easily uh, be something like just, you know, do a few tablespoons of sauerkraut or kimchi or something like that every day during the winter hours. Make sure that you get enough vitamin D and then implement some type of a mushroom product into your diet, whether it was your own wild harvested chaga tea or, you know, some extract of rishi or something like that. Those would be my three big guns. Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't take any 
effort to uh, either make your own sauerkraut or to you know buy some kimchi from from the local supermarket you know it's 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 very easy to get some fermented foods do you make yeah your, do you do do you make your own fermented foods and how, how much do you consume a day yeah i i make um, both beverages and and of course i make mainly those fermented vegetables from you know wild herbs so it can be wild nettles and all the other local local herbs from from the ecosystem and those are the things that i usually just take one like tablespoon because they're even much much more powerful than let's say just the typical sauerkraut that's made from cabbage and carrots and stuff like that so that's a big big thing for me um i don't find those types of product that much uh, commercially available because of the regulation and all that but i definitely believe that the the bacterial strains that you'll find from wild wild plants are often much more um, strong and much more something that you you'd actually want from your ecosystem that's literally you know 100 meters from where you live so they they build different um, intelligence and uh, of course just making it from cabbage or or these other vegetables as you said is very easy and cost effective mm, exactly like but what about uh, some probiotics or prebiotics should you should you take a supplement or should you focus on like uh, the real food I'm big on on kind of whole whole food or, or so-called synbiotics that both contain the probiotics and the prebiotics. But whenever I go, let's say, to the Amazons or some like really <laughs> interesting ecosystems, then, then I often carry around some probiotics. But other than that, I just mainly eat whole fermented foods and, and beverages, whether it was, you know, kombuchas or kefirs or different fermented vegetable juices and stuff like that. And especially during the winter, uh, during the summer, that's I find them much more easy just to do on a daily basis. And then during the winter, I like to do more kind of a, a bacteria in a food form, more of just um, veggies that are fermented. But um, in the prebiotic side, I think that just the fibers from berries and, you know, green leafy vegetables and, and highly pigmented vegetables, that's the way to go. That's that's what I mainly do. And, uh, of course, you know, things like just potatoes, letting them uh, cool down and getting that, that fiber from there. It's, it's a nice way to add some prebiotics into your diet very, very easily. Why don't we you know, talk about more about your personal routines and uh, what does an average day look like for you of eating? What do you eat per day? Yeah, at this time of the year, I, I usually, when I wake up, I just, you know, hydrate myself. I think that's always a good reminder that it's a break fast. So you've been fasting for seven hours, eight hours, ten hours. So you need to hydrate yourself. So. Usually for me, it's either just at least one liter of water or oftentimes I make a juice. I make, you know, celery, ginger, lemon, stuff like that. Very low glycemic, you know, mineral rich uh, green juice as the first thing in the morning. And after that, I don't usually um, 
even now now I've been off from any, any caffeinated drinks even but uh, at, at times I might drink coffee or tea or yerba mate or any other uh, caffeinated drink to get some information where going on the early early hours of the day but um, just liquids and then I often make this big chocolate elixir so that's the deal with um, with this type of um, season for me or then I might uh, actually start with some type of um, soup as I said uh, you know bone broth spicy stuff like that but usually I don't eat anything before lunch so just go with liquids and then it might might be that I have some meeting in the center and I go to eat, you know, some simple meat and veggies type of a lunch. And after that might snack something like, you know, avocados or some nuts or dark chocolate, stuff like that. And, and then I eat the big, big dinner usually. So I'm much more into... Um, to kind of go light early hours of the day and then my energy levels are often the highest during the end hours of the day and I do all the creative work from let's say 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. so I often eat much more during those hours so that's kind of a biorhythm that fits for me. I also feel like you know uh, staying in this fasted state for the majority of the day, it you know boosts my productivity and uh, cognitive work quite a bit. So, but uh, can you talk about what does your productivity r routine look like? How do you create your content and uh, writing material? Well, um, it of course depends because um, certain days I'm just traveling and giving speeches and stuff like that, and I don't do th that much writing during those days. I just felt it to be quite difficult to get in the zone uh, of actually creative work. Of course, I have last emails and stuff like that. But often I need kind of the whole day if I do some creative writing and then I'll start the day usually more kind of um, by energizing my body. I do little yoga, little meditation, rebounding, just to get the um, blood flowing, take a little walk and then kind of have my mind running so that I need to put that put those ideas out and then I often have some type of liquid for just those micro breaks that you kind of need to take mm. and then I sip something it can be you know chocolate drink or coffee whatever and then I usually go to the repounder and again I get these things things going but um, that's pretty much how I write I, I break the pattern by um, doing something, you know, doing chin-ups, doing something, going for a little walk, and then when I have this urge that now I need to need to put it out, then I'll, I'll go back to back to my computer, and it might last, you know, 45 minutes, several hours, and then I actually get the stuff stuff gone gone from my head, but uh, it's often just creating the space for for this creative state say to to take place and. And of course, I use stuff like you know different essential oils and things to anchor you know the whole environment to to kind of remind myself that in this this state I've before done these types of things. So I often try to try to create kind of an anchor by music, by certain uh, smells in the environment and stuff like that. What would be like uh, 
two of the most important things anyone can do for their for their body and their mind? Well, I think uh, it boils down that the most important thing for your health and well-being is just that you do the stuff that you actually like. And that's a cliche. But I think that a um, good way to kind of clear that up is how, how um, Mr. Kotler, the Flow Genome Project, kind of uh, summarizes it. So you list down the things that you're curious about, like 10 to 15 things that you're curious about. And then you think about like, what are the things that overlap? And by recognizing the pattern that there are, you know, three things, five things that are overlapping, you're kind of seeing the pattern where your neurobiology is the most active. Mm -hmm. And by focusing more of, of things like that, you just get this primary nutrition. You're energized just by the idea. There is tendency between you and the ideas that you want to explore you're excited so that's super healthy for you yeah <laughs> so i think uh, it's just um very meta very meta around the whole health but that's it's super good for you because you get energized just by by thinking about those things and then i just need to need to say you know breathing is kind of the swiss knife of health it's not a hammer that kind of just goes into one direction as many of the other tools. Yeah. But uh, breathing, it can be, you know, box breathing, Wim Hof, Butenko. There are so many different ways to do this or implement it by, you know, downloading space app by dopamine labs that reminds you every time before you tap into the matrix of Facebook or Twitter that you need to do this to become much more aware of where our breathing is going mm. throughout the day. And by this, I think we, we fix many of the other issues that we often try to tackle from different directions. So those would be two kind of big master things that I just want to remind people of. Wow, those, uh, those things that you mentioned, they, they influence your presence in the world, you know, how you're flowing through space and uh, you know how, what, what kind of information you're gathering from the world around you, whether that be through nutrition, whether that be through other physical uh, experiences, touch, breathing, you know, those things are also you know, just information that you send to your nervous system. And that, that in return will you know, affect everything that goes on inside, whether that be your microbiome or your nervous system or you know, everything in your brain as well. So that's kind of kind well of said. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, what, what, what does the future hold for Yako in terms of, you know, flowing through the world? Well, um, this has been quite a hectic year. I've been probably into over 20 countries this year. A lot of traveling, a lot of has, a lot of lectures. So now for a month, I'll kind of um, reflect and summarize the whole year. Just think about things and, and write more. So not that many events um, during the, the, the next month. And then for the next year, I, of course, have some cool trips coming up, sourcing some products from South America and stuff like that. But um, nothing too fancy. We are publishing a biohacking stress book probably early next year. Mm -hmm. And um, other than that, there are just a few, few smaller projects 
a podcast that I've been doing for several years. We are bringing that back. It's in Finnish, but um, things of that nature and just focusing more on Foodin, which is a company that I'm a part of and we produce, you know, chocolate and all kinds of health foods. So um, a lot of balls in the air, but um, yeah, just a lot of writing um, for the next, let's say, month or two and just reflecting what, what I want to be when I become adult someday. <laughs> Definitely. I'm looking forward to those, those uh, you know, projects that you're working on. But uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, jakkohalmettaja.com. You can find all the social links from there. And of course, just Google my name and you'll find uh, probably something interesting from there. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode. I'm sure that you got a lot of valuable information from Jakko. I'm definitely going to start searching for some chaga mushrooms and some nettles in my backyard. So maybe you can see some future video about it. But other than that, Click the like, subscribe, notification bell as well. Make sure you leave us a review if you already haven't and tell your friend about us. Thanks for watching. My name is Seem. Stay well, stay empowered.